Hello and welcome to the Apologia Center weekly interviews, live interviews. My name is Arthur Asadurian, and it is 1.02 p.m. here on the west coast of the United States. It's getting chilly. All the California, well, the Southern California folks are like in their sweaters and all of that, and, and we're being made fun of. I got made fun of on Instagram yesterday uh, quite a bit for being at my son's soccer practice, like all with my jackets and all that stuff. And people on the East Coast are like, hey, man, that's summer weather right there, what you guys got going on. And uh, so we have someone who's kind of joining us from the East Coast. Um, I want to introduce you guys to uh, Dr. Ryan Mullins. We will give uh, a little introduction about him and who he is and the kind of work he's involved in and his education and travels and life. And then we will jump into one of my favorite subjects to think about because I think it has a lot of practical outcomes that are very important. So thank you for agreeing to be here on this uh, interview. Yeah, no problem. Okay, so let me uh, just run through kind of your your educational career and uh, and then how complicated that got afterwards. But uh, <laughs> simply put, right, uh, you have a degree in uh, humanities from Point University. You have an MA in philosophy from Trinity International University. And you have a PhD in philosophical theology from the University of St. Andrews. And you were able to do all of that by the time you were 30. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for yeah. making the rest of us uh, feel accomplished. <laughs> Uh, but that's, okay, so that's interesting, right? That's that's some of the stuff that I I enjoy talking to our guests about. Uh, what was that like? I mean, you you know, you're you're all of your twenties essentially. You are in school. Um, what kind of advice and tips would you give uh, someone who maybe is on the beginning journey of that, or maybe even someone who's finished their MA and they're looking into a PhD program? Some practical advice and wisdom as they navigate so life. Yeah, I, everything I have to say, take with a grain of salt, because everybody's experience is so radically different that I can't, I can't for the life of me pinpoint what uh, a normal academic track is supposed to look like anymore. Um, but I can tell you a little bit. So when I was thinking about doing a master's at that point, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. Uh, I just didn't know, do I want to teach high school or do I want to teach at the university level? And so I decided just go ahead and get a master's degree anyway, because I just, I needed to know more about my faith. I just needed to know more about Christianity. And so I was like, that'll serve me teaching either, either level. It doesn't matter. And then when I got to my master's, I was like, yeah, I'm really addicted to philosophy now because it's very addictive, uh, these sorts of things. And I was thinking, okay, I need to do a PhD. Uh, do I want to do a PhD? Can I do, what, what should I do? And so I asked Keith Yandel, who was my, uh, one of my professors of philosophy at the time. And he was one of my mentors. And the advice he gave to me was this, can you imagine yourself doing anything else and being happy? Mm. And if you can go do that because there's no jobs. And I was like, I cannot imagine doing anything else and being happy. Then he's like, well, you're stuck. <laughs> so you're going to have to do a PhD. You know what you have to do. Uh, and so you, got, you, and you got fair. bit by the disease. I did. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> like it, it, it's, it just sucks you in. And so I was like, okay, this is what I'm doing. Now, when you're picking a topic for a PhD, though, this is something that I got some advice on before starting, but I didn't, I didn't fully appreciate it. You need to pick a topic that is really going to catch, like, catch your interest for not just the duration of your PhD, but for like several years beyond that. 
So is this something that's going to capture your imagination for at least five to 10 years, basically? And and here's why. So first you need something to actually interest you because you have to stick with it and like get narrowly focused and research it for however long your PhD is. And then you publish something out of that. And then after that, if you want to go and do another topic, that's fine. But nobody cares about that topic yet because you've not published on it. They're only interested in what you've previously published on. So they're going to ask you to speak on these things and you're going to be talking about those topics. So, so I mean, like, like, so like my book on God and time came out was 2016 uh, and here we are still talking about those topics. Right. I'm working on a second book on the, on, on the issue, but so it is something that really captures my imagination. But yeah, there's a lot of people who they're like, yeah, that was 10 years ago when I worked on that. I'm doing other things. We're like, we don't care. We only want to know about that stuff, but that's why uh -huh. you're here to like talk about these old things. So you got to pick something that really captures your imagination for a very long time. Yeah. And then you're, and it's something that you can actually study for that amount of time. And there's things that yeah. uh, can be said on that. You've already, you've also written on God and emotion. That's something yes. else that you've worked on, which is very interesting. I think they're connected. Some people might not think they're connected. These two subjects, I think they are connected to a certain extent. Um, okay. So, Let's jump into this because mm -hmm. uh, this is a subject. First and foremost, so, sometimes I've sh I've shared my opinion in churches. And I've tried to be very careful with this, but people who aren't maybe philosophically trained or theologically trained, and then you'll say some of the things like, "Hey, I believe this." As a matter of fact, I just taught a two-hour you know discussion course I do for my my folks in Armenia, and uh, I they asked me about the interview, and then I said, "Well, here's my view on God and time." Uh, and then some of them, I could see the reaction was like, oh, man, this sounds like <laughs> heresy. Um, yeah. People who aren't used to some of these things and the literature out there and kind of the history of Christianity uh, get get freaked out because they think you're saying things that aren't very biblical. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about that. But let's let's start, I, I guess, the best place to do philosophy, as always, is are definitions. Yeah. Words and definitions, um, and we got to get those down before we we move on, and especially on this subject because I would say it's a combination of physics, philosophy, and theology. Would that be? Yeah, fair? yeah, uh, yeah. It's a hodgepodge of lots of things. There's yeah. like some additional stuff there, but we'll leave them out. But <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so help us understand the discussion generally before we even jump into theology and talk about mm -hmm. God. Generally, what's the conversation about time? So just time itself. Uh, so there's a couple different big questions that people ask. The first question that nobody asks, but they should, is what is time? And most philosophers of time and people who do physics, they just ignore that one and jump onto other topics. So that's a, a question in my mind of going, that's, that's really important, but everybody just jumps onto the next thing. So let me give you an example of this. Uh, so I was talking to the Higgs Center for Theoretical Physics in Edinburgh, and, and I was like, I want to do a workshop on just what is time. And they were terrified by the question. They're like, we don't, we don't, we don't know. And I'm like, but you guys are like physicists and mathematicians. They're like, yeah, yeah, we don't know. That's, that's the job of the philosopher. And I'm like, well, philosophers won't answer that question either. And so we had to change the topic to like problems related to time uh. in, instead of just what is time. Uh, so that that really annoys me and it's it's only within the last few years where i've really tried to nail down and get clear on what is time itself um and we'll come back to that but i'm just trying to lay out what the questions are Correct. so another really big question though that people do ask and debate a lot is like what moments of time exist so is is the present is that all that exists or do like does the past exist as well is the future already settled like do those things already exist uh are there other timelines out there is there like a multiverse like these are the kind of things that people get interested in 
And then they also get interested in questions about personal identity over time. Like what makes me the same person mm -hmm. from one moment to the next? Uh, and that's, I think that's really important for just your day-to-day -day, like practical life. Uh, you're trying to make decisions uh, and they're like, okay, I'm the one who's going to have to do this this weekend. Do I really want to like put this task off to like, you know, like I should clean this room. Yeah, I'll do it later. Oh gosh, but I'm going to have to do, like I am going to have to do that later. Well, maybe you might say, well, future Ryan's going to do that. Leave like, it well, to that's that a different guy. View. Yeah, leave it exactly. So you get these kind of different like kind of issues coming up. And I think it has implications, which we can talk about later for life after death. Um, so like, if is there really one thing that's me that persists from moment to moment? And is there one thing that's me that persists from death to resurrection? So there's a kind of like a network of, of more abstract, like what is time? What moments of time exist? What am I, this thing that goes from moment to moment? Uh, it's a, so they can get really abstract and they can get very personal. Okay, so uh, there are two main views uh, of time out there, uh, brilliantly mm -hmm. named um, the A theory and the B theory. Uh, why don't you give us a little breakdown of uh, what, the, what those signify, what they mean, and whether it's even an issue of like Christians like have to be this view or that view, because that's important uh, for us to realize the diversity in the conversation. Yeah, so this is a weird one. This one took me years to figure out what's being said because everyone disagrees on all the details of this because they're confusing several different issues. So I think what when you're talking about the A theory, B theory distinction, you're talking about what's the best way to describe reality. So we're talking about propositions. And, and so what we're trying to do is we're looking at the whole temporal world and go, what's the best way to really capture all of the facts about the world? And so there's two kinds of facts. There's what are called tensed facts and tenseless facts. And so the A theory of time says that there that you need to have tense and tenseless facts to describe all of reality. So you have to describe reality in terms of past, present, and future, because those are the most fundamental kinds of facts. You can also describe reality in terms of like things that are earlier than, later than, and simultaneous with, mm -hmm. but those aren't the most fundamental ones. So a full description of the world, you're going to have to appeal to things that are happening right now and things that were the case in the past and things that will be the case in the future. So uh, in Edinburgh, in Scotland, where I used to live, there was this uh, mountain right outside my window called Arthur's Seat. Uh, and so I'd often go up to Arthur's Seat. And so a, a tensed fact that like an atheist will say, you, in order to really describe the world, you're going to have to say things like, Ryan is sitting on top of Arthur's Seat right now. Or Ryan will sit on top of Arthur's Seat. Or Ryan was sitting on top of Arthur's Seat. The atheist says, you're going to... You, if you're going to talk about reality, you have to, you have to talk with these terms. That's part of the story of the world. The B theorist goes, eh, I don't like those facts. Uh, I don't need any of those things. All I need are the tenseless facts, just facts about what was earlier, later, and simultaneous with. So Ryan sits on Arthur's seat at, uh, October 1st, 2023. That's all I need to talk about. Uh, the battle of Hastings was earlier than that moment. Um, you know, the human outpost on Mars is later than that moment. Mm. This is the way they talk. So there's no past, there's no present, there's no future. There's no, you don't need to talk in those terms because there's no objective now on the B theory. There's no facts about the matter of what's happening right now on that, on that view. So the only way to describe reality, the proper way is in terms of these tenseless facts or these B facts or what they're sometimes called. That's, that's the kind of the idea. Okay, so some, sometimes these are also referred to as a dynamic view and a static view of time. Yeah, supposedly, and this is where it gets messy, because, again, I said, in my mind, we're just trying to figure out how to talk about time. 
when we start getting into tense, like these like dynamic views, these static views, you're now getting into a different kind of question. Uh, so you're getting into the question that I asked earlier, which is what moments of time exist. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is where A theory and B theory, people thought they mapped on nice and neat to certain answers to that question, but they don't at all. It's an absolute mess. Um, so I'll try to make it less messy. Here's the standard sort of claim. If you affirm the A theory, then you're supposed to affirm some sort of view on the ontology of time that privileges the present moment. But you've got options though. You could be a presentist, which is what I am. The present is the only moment that exists. So the present exhausts reality. So you really do have a nice way to capture the, the uniqueness of the present moment because it's what captures what exists. But there's these other people though who go, well, maybe the past exists too. And they're called growing block uh, theorists mm -hmm. because they'll say the past exists and the present exists. And then a new moment of time gets added to like the block of time. And now that's the present. And then a new moment gets added. And now that's the present. And so the entire like way the world is, is constantly changing because these, these new moments being added and added and added. Well, there's this other option you could do too, though, uh, that is not very popular, but it's one you could have, which is called uh, the moving spotlight. And what the moving spotlight says is past, present, and future moments all equally exist. And a lot of B theorists go, I like this. I like this. All, all these moments of time, they're there. They're there. Reality is not changing in, in like any sort of weird sort of way. There's still change in the world, but not in these big dynamic ways. Mm -hmm. uh, but the moving spotlight goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. All those moments exist, but they're still got to capture the, the present. And the B theorist is like, why are you doing this to me? And the, and the moving spotlight goes, because it's important. The present is important. And so what they'll do is they'll say there's the spotlight, like kind of like on the block of time that's somehow capturing the present moment. It's just like moving along to point out, now that's the moment. Now that's the present. Now that's the present. So the reason this is messy is because you've got these kind of views. This is the standard story that I just gave you. But there's going to be people who are presentists like me who will go, but I really like the, the temporal logic that the B theory has. So I'm a presentist, but I affirm the B theory. And you're like, whoa, okay, hang on. Now, like, why, why, like, why are you doing it? You're just confusing things. And they're like, no, 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 like, because this is a logical statement. This other view is about an ontology of time, but the A theory, B theory is about logic. And so they'll say the best temporal logic is the B theory. So, and then you'll see people who affirm an eternalist ontology of time, which is what you think a B theory should affirm. And they'll go, yeah, but the best temporal logic is the A theory. So here's it, here you go. The an A theory. So I'm an eternalist, but I'm an A theorist. And I'm like, okay, this just gets messy and confusing. So I usually don't talk about A theory, B theory, because it I'm doesn't map it, yeah. on the way that, that we typically tell the story. It actually gets way too more complicated than that, which is annoying and makes philosophy time way harder than it ought to be. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, so this is a, a subject that is complicated enough by itself. Yeah, right. Um, and then so because, you know, uh, we like complicating things even more, we yep. come to it and say, now we're going to talk about God. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Why not? Because, well, because we're Christians, we believe yeah. God exists, and God's got to have some kind of a relationship with time because here's our experiences, here's what Scripture affirms. Things like God knows the future. Um, it's like, well, how does he know the future? Does the future exist? And uh, that's kind of, he kind of looks ahead and sees it. Are there different modes of him knowing it? So it, again, it's one of these things that complicates the matter mm -hmm. uh, quite a bit more. And so you happen to be one of these Christians. And mm -hmm. <laughs> you're like, yep, I, I, I want to, I, I like difficulty in my life. Um, so let's talk about maybe, let's start, we could say a bit devotionally here. Mm -hmm. How does this study impact your life 
in, in a very practical day-to-day sense. I mean, you mentioned some of that stuff. Uh, but your view, how does it maybe settle your heart a bit and your relationship with God and what that looks like? Because I want to prove to people from that, I want to prove to people yes. that this is something important enough for you to commit your life, uh, your time to study and looking into. Because it is complicated, you're going to have to do some work. So let's talk about the practical stuff. Yeah, so when I look at the Bible, there's all these amazing statements about God being the everlasting God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's in Psalm 90, mm-hmm. verse 2. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. So the Bible is telling me God's everlasting. Well, what does that mean? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but it seems it's important to the Bible. There's all these other statements, too, about what was God doing before he created the universe. A- and sometimes this is a philosophical question, but the Bible's like, well, I've got an answer. And I'm like, whoa, okay. Uh, and so when you look at the Gospel of John, you see Jesus saying, talking about the love that him and the Father have before creation. From all eternity, they had this loving relationship. Mm. And Jesus says, I want all of these people to have the same loving relationship that we had before creation. And I'm like, oh, okay. So something about the eternal nature of God, something about the eternal loving nature of God is really important to what Jesus thinks he's up to in his ministry. And then I'll give you one final example of something that where it describes what God's up to before creation. So the apostle Paul, when he's, when he's looking at this sort of stuff, he's like, well, prior to creation, God's plotting to take over the world. That's what he's up to. He's planning, he's predestining, he's foreknowing, he's coming up with some sort of plan to ensure that his creatures fulfill whatever purpose God has for us, which I think is to enter into divine like friendship with God, mm. uh, divine creature friendship. I'm like, okay, so this is, these are really important things. Now, where it comes to like getting the details of God in time, that's where it starts to, to get slightly different. It's, so I've got this sort of biblical story that there's God before creation, from everlasting to everlasting, before the mountains, before the heavens and the earth are formed, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And apparently there's this loving friendship between the Father and the Son that God wants to give to us. And he's got a plan to enact all of that. Is that actually possible? Because if it's not possible, then we're Christianity screwed how you understand God's relationship time is how you answer that question. Is this actually possible? Because I think some views on God and time make the Christian story impossible and thus make the Christian story false. Whereas others, the view that I happen to hold is the one that entails that it's, it's possibly true. And I'm like, okay, there we go. Christianity is at least, at least on the table now to consider. Now we can give evidence for Christianity. So I think the coherence of the Christian story is, is wrapped up in these questions about God and time. Okay. So what what are the differences amongst Christians? Like what what different views are there amongst Christians uh, mm-hmm. on on this subject? So everyone says God's eternal. Like no one's doubting that. So that just means that God exists without beginning and without end. So God never began to exist because he's a necessarily existent being and he cannot cease to exist because he necessarily exists. So he's eternal. Everyone's like that's cool. What you get though is this debate over whether or not God is timeless or temporal. And so if you want to say God's timeless or temporal, you need to make an additional claim above and beyond the claim that God's eternal. So I'll start with timelessness. Mm -hmm. So if you want to say God's timeless, you go, okay, cool, eternal, without beginning, without end. But like I said, you got to make an additional claim. You got to say God exists without succession. So God doesn't do one thing and then another. And God does not uh, have temporal location. So God does not exist right now. He didn't exist in the past. He will not exist henceforth. He just 
you know, doesn't have any temporal location whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So the claim sometimes is God exists in this uh, timeless present that lacks a before and after, whereas he has all of his life all at once, because there's not one thing and then another. There's nothing like that in the timeless God. It's weird. We can get into some of the weirdness and uh, to try to help people wrap their minds around that. Um, the other view, though, is to say that God's temporal. You go, okay, cool. God's eternal. Because again, everybody says eternal. Yay. I like that. So God exists without beginning and without end. But if you say God's eternal, you're going to say God can undergo succession. God can do one thing and then another. And then you're also going to say God can have temporal location. So God can exist right now. So God can have a past. God has a future. He's made promises that will fulfill in the future. And he exists right now. That's the claim if, if that God's temporal. So that's where the real kind of big debate is, is God being timeless or temporal. Okay. And, and then there's individuals that think uh, it's sort of like a both, like he was timeless. So, and, and then yeah. uh, uh, post-creation, his temporal. So there's, there's yeah. I suppose it's a combination of both. I, I don't really think so, but that's my I, problem. I don't <laughs> either. The difficulty is trying to state the view coherently and also state the view in a way that you can make sense of it because that's so if you say he was timeless well now you've you've got this kind of before and after in the life of god and that's a temporal relation and so you don't so that's incoherent yeah and Logically like craig prior to if you want to be yeah so you gotta so yeah. yeah craig says this thing he says he's um he's logically prior he's causally prior but not temporally prior so god was timeless without the universe temporal with the universe i'm like okay that's, that's coherent on its face that's fine but what does that really mean? How is that like, what is that exactly does that mean? And that's where I can't figure out. That's the so, only real disagreement I've got with Craig on that. So that, that would be William Lane Craig's uh, yeah. position. Uh, and he's written a book uh, on this called um, Time and Eternity. He's um, written yeah. that and he's written yeah. God, Time and Eternity and yeah. lots, a million papers. Like, yeah, he's written tons on this. Yeah. He does that stuff really well. Yeah. Um, and, and what you're saying is that you, uh, you disagree with this view. Yeah. So I like the temporality part. I'm like, I'm all on board on that. We can get into that in a little bit. But trying to figure out what does it really mean to say that God's timeless without the universe and temporal with the universe is really difficult. So you might say, well, God's God's timeless phase of existence, you could say it's it's causally prior to the universe. I don't know what that means because I think that causes are always temporally prior to their effects. Uh, and so if God's going to be causally prior, that means he's temporally prior. Here's a slight plot twist, though, that makes it even weirder. Craig has been pushed on this in some more recent publications, and he's clarified his view is not that the timeless phase is causing anything. It's the temporal phase of God that's causing the universe to exist. And okay. I'm like, okay, cool. And then I'm like, well, but hang on. I've got all these quotes from you saying that God is causally and not temporally prior to the universe. And I'm like, well, now, now that's that's out the window. I don't I don't know what I don't know what the, the claim is anymore. So, so I've, I have I've had several conversations with him trying to get clear on this, and I I'll get clarity on some point, but I still keep coming back to I don't understand how these two phases of God's life I don't I don't know how they fit together. Yeah. I can't I can't make sense of it. So I want to go. Let's just say God's always been temporal. It's it's a lot easier. Yeah, um, I, that's that's where I land. Uh, so it, it it seems to me that's a simpler explanation of the whole thing. Uh, gi- given some, you know some some ways of explaining uh things mm-hmm. relationally and 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 we'll go, we'll come back to this question of what is time because that's of extreme importance in, in this yes um there are also obviously christians uh that believe that god is still timeless like it, it's, yeah. it's kind of like just outside the whole entire thing sometimes this is called the augustinian view 
mm-hmm. um, and um, and then people fit some of these in with their theologies a bit easier, basically. I mean, usually folks who tend to be reformed, uh, maybe some people can read on on the subject would be uh, Paul Helm, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know that God is just outside the whole shebang. And um, w- would that view kind of mean that God is experiencing all moments of time at once? This is what's weird. When you look historically at this claim, um, everybody uses it as a metaphor to say that God like metaphorically experiences all of time at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, they, and it's really clear. They'll, they'll use the, it's as if God experiences all time at once. Uh, and so in my first book, The End of the Timeless God, I have a whole chapter where I just dig into that history and go, look, everybody's saying it's as if. Because if you say God literally experiences all of time at once, then you get this very weird problem of God simultaneously existing with all these different moments. Well, then all those moments have to be simultaneous. So that means like your birth uh, and then like you scraping your knee when you're like nine years old and then like your death, those are all simultaneous with each other. And you're like, well, that's, that's false. Like, come on. Like my birth is not like, it's not identical to like, it's not simultaneous with my death. Like this is a crazy, this is crazy. Uh, and, and the Christian tradition knew it was crazy. Uh, so they were very clear to say like, no, it's only as if it's only as if, because here's what the claim is, which might sound crazier, but I don't know. The Christian tradition says lots of things. Here's the claim. God, all of God's knowledge, he has all at once in this timeless present. And it's based entirely on himself, based entirely on introspection. So God knows his nature so well that he just knows all of the things that are taking place on the timeline. So it's not based on like him seeing, oh, that's what Arthur and Ryan are doing right now. It's just based on his own nature. Because uh, you don't want God being influenced by the timeline because then he'll be temporal. And you're trying to say right now, we're trying to say God's timeless. So we don't want that. So, so they'll say it's as if God is experiencing all of time at once, but really it's just God's experiencing himself all at once. And he just, and somehow knowing himself, he knows all the facts. To be, to be a bit more critical, I guess here is what's the fear? Mm-hmm. What's the fear in people uh, other than uh, some people might say, well, here's what scripture we think teaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I still think there's a fear there of saying something like, yeah, God is temporal. He is in time. Whatever mm-hmm. we mean by time. Um, right. Do you think there is a fear? Oh, there's a huge fear, which is odd to me. So I was rereading um, St. Augustine's book, City of God, this last week to try to finish up the current book I'm writing on God and time. And and Augustine, like, he's pretty clear. He's like, he admits that, yeah, the Bible uses all these temporal terms, like all the biblical terms for, for eternity are, are temporal terms. And he's like, yeah, okay. And then he's like, yeah, the Apostle Paul clearly talks about God ex- like existing before creation and talks about so, so time must exist before creation. And that goes against Augustine's view. And he's like, yeah, it would take a long time to discuss all those things. So I'm going to move on to the next topic. And I'm like, I'm like, fair enough. Because like the city of God, if anybody's read that thing, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's over a thousand pages. It's, it's, it's yeah. huge. So I'm like, okay, fine, man, whatever. Um, but he's got this big fear that if God changes, uh, then God's going to get better or worse. And this is a huge assumption you see mm-hmm. in all of Western philosophical theology. You see people rejecting it, but you also see people accepting it. So it's a big point of contention, a big point of debate. So the claim is all change is for the better or worse. And if we want to say God's perfect, that, I mean, obviously we want to say God's perfect. Well, can God get better? That doesn't make any sense. Because yeah, if he's right. perfect, like you weren't that great if you could get better. And, and can you get worse? Well, you're not that great if you could get worse. So, well, since all change is for the better or worse, and God can't get better or worse, then well, then God can't change. 
and, and, and so that's this deep assumption you see in a lot of different thinkers in Judaism, Islam, and, and, and Christianity throughout Western history uh, of, of, this, of this assumption, what's called the Platonic assumption, because it comes from Plato, that all changes for the better or worse. And if God changed, then he'd be getting better or worse. And that would be really bad because God's supposed to be perfect. So that's and, kind of the fear in the background. And I'm assuming you disagree with this notion. I do. Yeah, because it's really easy to show that this principle is false. So, okay, let's do all that. You gotta, yeah. yeah, so because all you got to do is just come up with one example because it's the claim is all changes for the better or worse. All you got to do is go, well, here's one case where change, but it's not better or worse. It's neutral. So imagine that all that exists are just two electrons spinning in the void. That's it. So at one moment, the electrons are like in their respective locations. Like this one's on the left, this other one's on the right. That's it. At the next moment, they switch locations. And then, then the next moment, they switch back. And they're just doing this for over and over. Well, you've got change taking place there. But it's not, there's nothing, I mean, it's boring. Like there's nothing terribly interesting happening at all. And, and, and when I go, is this, is this really better? or worse. And I'm like, there's nothing better or worse about electrons just changing their, their spatial locations in the void forever and ever on that. Like, because it's just, it's just painfully boring. So there's nothing better or worse about these changes. So what this entails is that not all change is for the better or worse. Some changes are value neutral. And that's it. You could still go, that's it. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, there's, yeah, there's really not more to say. It's like, just need one counter example. I gave you one. What more do you want? You know? And yeah, God's, There's God's ways experience you could push of back this. Back. Yeah, so God's experience of this wouldn't really change um, him being unchanging. I, I guess that, you know, the idea that comes here is obviously divine immutability and, and some people yes. just really want to make God this, I don't know, the best way I can think about it, like the static being that just, you know, I know we have Bible passages like Jesus Christ the same today, yesterday mm -hmm. and forever. And, and they try to back this up with that. But maybe we need more clarification as to the kind of change we're talking about. Because in Christian exactly. theology... We, we very clearly believe that God has experienced change. Yeah. I think this is a big like wrench in this conversation is that we have the incarnation. It's like God yeah. went from not having a human nature to having a human nature. Correct. So God's experience changed at least in one way. Yeah. So let me, yeah. So let's clarify this immutability yeah. stuff um, to help people understand what, what, what's the big deal. So, everyone agrees that God's nature cannot change. Like God's essentially loving, God's essentially all-powerful or all-knowing, all these sort of things. Everyone's like, that's fine. That cannot change. Because by definition, essential properties are not the sort of things that can change. You can't change in essence. But the worry that sometimes people have, though, is that if God could change in any other way, shape, or form, then he would lose his essence. And I want to go... No, you know, you've misunderstood what it means to have an essence. Essences are not the sort of things that can change. So if you hold my view of God in time, you're going to say God's essence can't change. That's fine. But God can change in certain other ways, such as, well, am I creating a universe? No, I'm not. I'm just hanging out by myself. Now I'm going to exercise my power to create a universe. I wasn't always exercising this power. Now I am. So I've undergone a change. Mm -hmm. And my knowledge changes too, because now I know I just created a bunch of cosmic stuff. God wasn't always entering into a covenant relationship with Moses. And then at some point he was like, hey, Moses, come over here. Well, let's, let's do some stuff. These are new actions that God is performing. And his knowledge is going to perfectly track all of those changes in reality because his knowledge is going to perfectly track all the facts as they unfold. 
And so God entering into covenantal relationships, coming up to prophets, answering prayers, and then in the fullness of time, becoming incarnate in Jesus Christ. Those are all new moments in the life of God. So they're new actions that God performs. They're new experiences that God undergoes. So he's changing in terms of his experiences, his actions, his knowledge. But he's not changing his essence. He's still the eternal, all-powerful, all-loving being. If you want to go with full-blown immutability, though, you got you got to get rid of all of that. you got to say God cannot change intrinsically or extrinsically. God cannot change in any way, shape, or form. And he might go, well, can he change in that? No, he cannot change in this way. Like, but what about this other? No, he cannot change. Because if he changes, he's going to be timeless. Uh, he cannot be timeless. And if you, so you, this strong doctrine of immutability that you need for timelessness, it's, it's very strong. So you have to say God eternally is causing the universe to exist. Uh, you have to say God's eternally answering your prayers. God's eternally becoming incarnate. It's hard to figure out what those things actually mean, but you have to say that because you can't have God changing. And then you also have to say, this is what Augustine, this is what uh, Peter Lombard and Aquinas all say. You also have to say God's not really related to the universe mm. because God would undergo various kinds of relational changes, such as becoming the creator, becoming the redeemer, becoming the Lord and judge of all men. And so Augustine and everybody else, they are very clear. They say God does not have those properties because he's not really related to the universe. If you can't say that God's the creator and redeemer, um, I don't, I mean... I guess you could be, you know, say you're still doing Christian theology, but, uh, so this is, this is, I don't the know. Fear it's in me. It's, it seems to me, and maybe this is the danger of doing philosophy, but I mean, mm -hmm. we, we can, we have to do it. Um, is that it seems to me that this pushes us back to having some kind of a weird platonic view of God rather than a Christian view of God. Mm -hmm. I like, I'm more concerned about having a Christian view of God rather than yeah. a platonic one. Me, me too. The, the Plato thing gets weird. Um, so, so Plato, he has this, this, uh, this book called the Timaeus, uh, where he has this creation story. If you read it literally, God's temporal there. Uh, and actually after he wrote that, there's this huge split in Western, uh, philosophical theology, because in that story, uh, the creator, the, the God uh, creates the universe out of some preexistent material, but the universe begins to exist. Mm. Uh, and so what it creates is this huge divide going, if you say that, that, that the universe begins to exist, then you have to say God's temporal. Uh, uh, and so a lot of people go, well, Plato was speaking metaphorically. He wouldn't say something so stupid. Um, and then, uh, and then other people go, no, he's literal. So we want to take that literally because the God, be the universe began. So therefore God's temporal. And then you see these other people going, no, Aristotle was right. Um, the universe eternally exists and God didn't create it. It's just because God's timeless. Um, so you've got this timeless God, this eternal universe, that's that. So you've got this immediate split around this, this story that Plato writes, and it's not clear if, it's, if, if, he's, if he's writing literally or metaphorically. But what, it, what, you, what you see, though, is the exact sort of problem here going of like, well, if I want to say that God, like the universe began to exist because God created the universe out of nothing. Well, can I actually say God's timeless? Or to, because it seems like I have to say God's temporal. That's the, the conceptual baggage that comes before Christianity is even born, is it seems like you're going to have to say these things. And other, everybody else who wants to say God's timeless, they say God has to create a, an eternal universe yeah, because an eternal being is going to have an eternal effect. So I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is, is my, my fear is this, the, the, the reason why these Gnostics come about, right? Like Neoplatonism yeah. and Gnosticism is to divide God from any connection to the mm -hmm. world where like, yes. even, even in Gnosticism, 
like like the demiurge is the creator god creator god yes. and, and and like this divine one is so distinct and separate and somehow i still don't know what uh, what they're trying to say but necessarily yeah, like produces weird. these like lesser deities but yeah. it's like we can't bring that into christianity because in christianity no. there's such a relational view of god like when i pray at least when i read the bible when moses is talking mm -hmm. to god forget me when Paul is praying and talking to God, the assumption there is that God is actually listening to him and then does something. Yeah, or exactly. doesn't. Or says, no, Paul, you know, my, my grace is sufficient. You're, you're going to suffer. And yeah. that's a completely different view of God mm -hmm. than obviously this Gnostic view that, uh, that, that was around and Christians yeah. rejected it. Yeah. And then we go but around still, like in philosophical theology yeah. and somehow like try to get reconnected with it. It just seems strange to me. It is. And that I think is a huge theme in the entire uh, Western history of philosophical theology is people taking this sort of like view that you kind of get from Aristotle and you get from the Neoplatonists and going, how do I fit that with revealed religion? Like what God has revealed to himself about us? How do I make these two fit together? And I think the answer is you can't, but it's, it's interesting to read throughout the entire Western tradition and see them just twisting themselves in knots, trying to figure out how to make these two things fit together. And I, and I think you just consistently, you keep seeing people in every generation pop up going like, you can't make these fit. Like, come on, man, like, stop. You just can't, this doesn't work. Uh, and you see that in Christianity, you see it in Islam, you see it in Judaism. Yeah. Um, because here we're talking yeah. generally about God, right? Like we're, exactly. I mean, we can come at it as Christians and then talk about the incarnation mm -hmm. and the Trinity and all that stuff. Maybe we can make sense of the whole thing a lot better uh, because of, of these views. I tend to think so. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it, you know, this is an inner religious dialogue. Uh, let me ask you, uh, uh, let me ask you, ha has this given you opportunities to, to fall into some uh, uh, some conversations with strange bedfellows? Maybe you're a bit like sitting around with Muslims and uh, and, and Jews talking it about has, it? It has been, yeah. Like um, So so more recently, I've had a lot of dialogues with, um, with a lot of Muslim uh, philosophical theologians because I reject something called divine simplicity, which uh -huh. is connected to this claim that God's timeless and, and, and immutable. And very early on in the Islamic tradition, there's a huge split over this over this topic, and the majority view says divine simplicity is false. Uh, and so when I just wrote some papers going divine simplicity is false, uh, a lot of them were like, "Oh, that's really cool. Let's translate that into Turkish. Let's translate that into into Persian." And, and so like, uh, so all those people reading and then asking me to like come talk about it. So so it's, 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 it helped me get into a lot of really cool conversations with a lot of Muslim um, uh, scholars today, and then um, a lot of Jews as well. So um, a, a lot, I've got I've got a couple of friends who are doing really interesting work on Jewish philosophical theology, and they're trying to figure out how to make sense of the atonement uh, and, and salvation and, and the problem of evil. And they and there's these really weird things you could do with time to try to take some um, some biblical passages if you take some of them not as metaphors but like really literally. So there's this passage where I think it's Isaiah. Isaiah says, I'll remember your sins no more. That might be Jeremiah. It doesn't matter. Um, I will remember your sins no more. Uh, most commentators will say, well, God's just speaking hyperbolically to say like, you know, I'm really going to forgive you. Don't worry. Yeah. But there's a, there's a few mystical rabbis here or there who go, let's take that really literally. Like God literally like gets rid of the past. And so some of my, some of my friends who are, who are Jewish philosophers, they're like, we can do some crazy stuff with the metaphysics of time to to take that literally and it, it's weird stuff i love it um but it's it's way more speculative than i can take yeah, it very seriously right. but it, but it's 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 cool stuff though so yeah th these kind of dialogues have helped me get in into dialogues with uh 
Jews, Christians, Muslims, and uh, also some Hindus every now and then too. So it's it's been cool stuff. It's been really interesting. Okay, so let's talk about your view. You've already you've mm -hmm. obviously written on this. You did your dissertation on it, and that's been published. Yeah. And, and you're still writing about it, and obviously thinking. Yeah. Let's let's. Um, <clears throat> what is it? So, what's your view? Let's put it that way. I mean, you mentioned uh, parts of it. Actually, let me see. You know what we didn't do is actually define time. Yeah. We've been talking about so this time. is where. What is time? Yeah. This is, we'll jump yeah. in here and then move into your view. So this is the newer work I'm doing. Is actually going guys, why did we not define what time is? Because everybody goes, there's this quote from Augustine where he says, yeah, I know what time is unless you ask me. Uh, and since you just asked me, I don't know what it is. And it's, it's funny. Like Augustine's like, he's got a lot of funny moments like that. But so many philosophers of time, that's where they start. And they never, and then they jump to the next topic. And I'm like, I can't talk about God's relationship to time unless you tell me what time is. This is right. annoying. So here is a view you see in the Western traditions um, and in uh, Eastern religions like Jainism and Hinduism. It's what's called the absolute theory of time. Mm -hmm. So the absolute theory of time says time is a substance. It's this eternal, uncaused substance that has several functions or several roles. Uh, the first function is it makes change possible. It's what makes change possible. How do you how do you even have change like me going from sitting to standing? Well, change is things being different at different moments of time. And so you already have to have time there in the story to make sense of that. So, so time is the thing that makes change possible. The second function that time has is it is the source of moments. So a moment is the way things are, but could be subsequently otherwise. So there's the way things are right now, like I'm sitting, uh, and then things could be otherwise at the next moment. So time is the source of moments. And then the final function, main function, is that time is the thing that orders a series of moments into what we'll call a coherent timeline. So why does a particular moment follow after any other? Well, something has to do with whatever time's up to and what happens in within time itself. So that's what time is. Here's this extra step that a lot of people like Isaac Newton uh, in the Western world make. And then in, um, then in the Hindu tradition, this guy named uh, Raghunata Sharomani um, and some others make this move to go, do you really want to say you've got from all eternity, you've got God and this substance called time just floating around? Yeah. Seems kind of weird. If you think God's the creator of everything, well, but there's this eternal uncaused something. Well, then he didn't create that thing. So, okay, what's, what's going on? Well, uh, Isaac Newton, as far as I know, never encounters this problem because he, from the start says time is a mode or attribute of God. Mm -hmm. So God is time. Um, because God's an eternal uncaused substance. He's the thing that makes change possible. He's the source of moments. And then whatever theory of providence you affirm, that's your story about how the, the time, like the timeline gets established, how the, the moments get ordered into some sort of series. So God is time. Uh, Raghunata Sharomani, he, he actually does encounter the problem of like, you've got time and God, like, it's just a simpler view to make, make God time. So he's got like a clear argument for that. Whereas in the Western tradition, I don't see that clear argument, um, by anybody. And, and, and we do this already, by the way, we do this with love. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. so that before anybody kind of flips out and says heresy, you know, stone him. Um, yeah. we, we do this, uh, quite a bit with, uh, especially when it comes to the subject of love. Mm -hmm. We even we we do this mo with morality, like a certain argument for God's existence from morality. Yeah, um, yeah. That's how the Christian essentially escapes the euthyphro dilemma uh, by mm -hmm. saying that 
you know, this God is the source of this. And it's just that, so the view is that, hey, we're just saying time is a part of this whole package, that God exists. Yes. And then there's time. So pure monotheism, does, does this become a problem with pure monotheism as opposed to Trinitarian monotheism? Not as far as I can tell. So any view that just has God being this eternal existent substance can make this claim that, mm. well, I said he's eternal. Well, time just is eternity. Um, so there you go. Okay. No big deal. Uh, yeah, I, I don't see any complications here. Um, there are sometimes people who want to say that because God's triune, therefore God's temporal. I've seen these kind of claims before. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never found any of the the arguments remotely convincing, but I see them sometimes. Um, I, and I've seen the arguments go the other way too, going because God's triune, he has to be timeless. And, and, I'm, and those sometimes are more interesting. Um, mm-hmm. But but yeah, I don't I don't think much hinges on whether or not you're going to be Unitarian or Trinitarian on this sort of uh, issue. Okay. Um, so your view. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about your view. So yeah. So yeah. So now I want to go with this crazy, like God is time stuff. Uh, it took me years to, to get over my, my feelings of, wow, this is really crazy. Um, but just finding more and more people that have affirmed it. I'm like, okay, okay. So if, if, if I'm crazy, then Isaac Newton's crazy. And okay, well, Isaac Newton did have a mental breakdown, but okay, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Other people also held a view to that time and they didn't have a breakdown. So, um, so what I want to say is I want to say all the things I said, like God is time. So God's the thing that makes change possible. He's the source of moments. And he's the thing that unifies a series of moments. And then I also want to clearly affirm that God's temporal because there are people in the Christian tradition who affirm that God is time, but they also said God was timeless. And, and I'm like, yeah. that doesn't make any sense. So let's just, let, let's just say God's temporal. So prior to creation, there's God, the triune God all alone and the father, son, and Holy spirit, they're loving each other. And then they're like, Hey, wouldn't it be really cool if we created some other things, uh, some other creatures who could enter into friendship with us. All right, let's go do that. And then that, that, and then it creates a universe, comes up with a plan, creates a universe and on you go and starts enacting that plan, unfolding that plan. So God does one thing after another. Sounds really radical, but it's just like, yeah, yeah God did one thing and then he did something else, you know. Revolutionary. I know, revolutionary, yeah. So it, so it seems to me that the major major issue here is the, the fear of this divine immutability or certain understanding of immutability. I mean, I think. Yes. It, it would be unfair to say stuff like you don't believe in divine immutability, right? I well, look, there are a lot of people who say they affirm weak immutability, mm-hmm. uh, and which is just the claim that God's essence does not change. And I'm like, that's fine, but saying weak immutability, it, I think it muddies the waters a little bit because we have such a clear understanding throughout history of what the term immutability means. And so I'm like, it'd be better to just say mutability, but. Mm-hmm. But this, the claim is still the same, though, of like God's essence cannot change. Uh, like God, Jesus Christ really is the same yesterday, today, and and, and forever. Um, but what's interesting about that is those are tensed statements. You're talking about Jesus having a past, existing right now in the present, and then that, that he will have a future. And so I'm like, yeah, I literally affirm that. Uh, there's this thing, Jesus, he has an essence, he has a nature, that can't change. He did a bunch of stuff in the past. He exists right with, like right now. And he's going to do some stuff in the future. He, this is a being that undergoes succession and undergoes change. So, yeah, I'm just, yeah, so, I, I don't know. I'm just making really the, biblical statements, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you would want to, right? Um, I try. I try. You know. th- there's, there's a view out, out there um, that God is in time, if we can speak in those ways, mm-hmm. right? Um, but does not know the future. 
because the future is this sort of thing that is impossible to know. Mm-hmm. Um, how how would you respond to that sort of an argument that is just? Yeah, so this is what's called open theism, and the open theists have some some interesting arguments for why this is the case. So if you affirm presentism, uh, so the view that the present the only moment that exists, and I want to go yes, amen, hallelujah, and in fact that's been the majority view throughout the entire uh, history of Christian thought is that the present is the only moment that exists, and the open theist goes, okay, so so can God know the future? Well, there's literally nothing there for God to know because it hasn't happened yet. And you're like, oh, goodness. Okay. Well, it's all right because the Christian tradition has an answer to this question, don't they? I hope they have an answer. Do they have an answer? Okay. Here's where it gets dicey. This question, how does God know the future? There's not a lot of clear answers. Um, A lot of people ignore the question, and that really annoys me. Um, Here's a few people who do finally take the answer seriously. So uh, one answer you could do is you could be what's like a Calvinist or just what's called theological determinism. So God knows the future because he is causally determined how things are going to go. So he knows, I know that this is what, what Ryan and Arthur are going to do because I'm going to cause them to do it. Uh, and so you're like, okay, cool. You've got a nice story now of how God knows the future. I don't like that because then I'm like, I don't know how I have free will. Um, that, that seems weird. But there's this other view then you could say there's this thing called Molinism. Molinism has to say some weird stuff and I'm willing to bite the bullet on that. Uh, but you, here's the weird things you have to say. You have to say from all eternity, there just, there just are these truths about what Ryan and Arthur would do in any possible situation. God didn't d- decide what those truths were. Uh, they just, he just, he's just like, Oh, Hey, there's just some eternal existent truths uh, in my mind about what Ryan and Arthur would do in any possible situation, what they would freely do in any situation. Well, I'm going to use those truths to form a possible timeline that I would like to bring about. Uh, and so in forming this particular timeline, I know that I'm going to put these creatures in this situation and they're going to do exactly what I, I, they're, they're, they're going to do. So this is supposed to somehow still get you an account of free will because God's not like causing you to do all the things. Uh, and you've got God knowing the future. Some people don't like that sort of story. Meh, I don't know. I'm, I'm happy with it for today. Um, but the open theists, they're not going to they're not going to be happy. In the they're going to deny it. They say it's a logical impossibility. Yeah. Uh, yeah so yeah. they're essentially saying that it's equivalent to God creating a square circle. Yes. Uh, yeah. Things are, it's just impossible. Yeah, so there's two ways to establish the impossibility The um, broadly. One is to try to go, the only way you could really clearly get God knowing the future is if you've if he causes it to be the case. Uh, and they'll try to give some kind of definition of determinism that makes the Molinist fall in that category. And then you can go, well, freedom is not compatible with being causally determined, so impossible. Uh, so God cannot foreknow what you will freely do. He can know what he's going to cause you to do, but that's not... That's not foreknowledge of what you're freely going to do because there's no free will. Uh, The other way is to try to go, it just really is the case that there just are no facts about the matter of what will happen. Um, uh, And so it's it's impossible to know because there's nothing to know. There just isn't anything to know. Yeah, maybe a a fair response for some folks sitting here and saying, oh, you guys are, you know, philosophers. I always expected these guys to be weird and not talk about the Bible. Well, you know, there are certain situations in the Bible where God is talking about the future um, Mm -hmm. and seems like he knows the future. Yes. Uh, the, the open theist would respond to these th- sort of stuff by saying, well, those are things that God intends to do, so that's why he knows them. Uh, and then some of them where uh, th- there's some scriptural arguments they try to give that this was written after the fact and all that. So to, to be fair mm-hmm. to the open theists out there, 
um, they they try to go around what I would oh, say. Yeah. I think God actually knows the future and uh, prophecy is a real thing. It's not just what he's intending on doing. He actually has access to that information. Uh, but we want to be fair in our uh, in our dialogue right, yeah. talks. Yeah, exactly. Because open theists have a whole network of of responses and ways of interpreting scripture. Um, so yeah, you can't just dismiss it quite so easily because they they've got a lot of arguments that are worth taking seriously. Yeah. Okay, so there's a number of questions that have come in. I want to ask ask these questions, um, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to talk to you about some superhero movies. Um, Sounds good. Because uh, <laughs> you know, at least in recent times, these these have something to do with what we're saying. They do. Um, so let's see. Uh, not that you're going to have uh, exhaustive knowledge of some of these questions, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but. Um, how, the question, the first one is uh, Dan's asking, how will we experience time when we are with God? Will we have a similar experience of time that God has? Yeah, that's a good one. I get asked this one. Uh, I used to get asked this one a lot. Um, I haven't heard in a while. I want to say there's the way God experiences time in one sense is exactly the same way that we do, which is you experience one thing after another after another. That's the only way you could experience it. There's some other aspects, though, of God's temporal experience that don't quite map onto ours that maybe at some point we will get. So here's one kind of experience. Um, Sometimes uh, I get impatient. So I don't like flying, but I have to fly like all the time uh, for work for some reason. And and so like I'm on some of these flights from like, say, like Finland to the US and it's like a nine hour flight and it hits some turbulence. It feels like forever Uh, or I get really bored. Or, you know, some of the horrible things happening in my life, and I'm getting impatient. Well, you might at various points in your life go, when is Jesus going to come back? When is God going to clean up this horrible mess in the world? There's all these horrible things happening. I'm getting impatient about it. Well, Second Peter says, God does not count patience in the way that you do. For him, a thousand years, it's like a day. And, and notice it's, it's, a, it's a simile that he uses there. So it's not a literal statement, uh, but you can understand the metaphor there because if you're an eternal being, you never began to exist. You've been around for you know, literally forever. A, th- a thousand years is kind of like, eh. I mean, you, for you and me, like, oh gosh, it feels like forever. But like God's like, you know, it's only a thousand years. Like, come on. Um, I think at some point in our eternal lives, like once we've been resurrected, uh, at some point we might get to the stage where we're like, yeah, a thousand years. Yeah, that's not so long. But right now, that feels like that feels like a lot. That's that's so interesting. So I, I don't know if you're a, um, a JR Token fan, and I don't know what you, mm-hmm. uh, what you view the Rings of Power series. I don't know if you've seen them. I um, haven't watched this that new series yet. No, you haven't. Okay, so not no. going to try to spoil it for you. But there's a very interesting yeah. scene where where Elrond hasn't visited a dwarf friend of his um, in some time, and then he goes and visits him, and uh, and his his buddy's mad. This is Durin. Uh, Durin is mad at him, and and in the conversation, it's actually really convicting uh, when you think about it. He says, you're an elf. You don't value time. Mm. (laughs) And he says, the last time you came, essentially, he says, the last time you you came, I I was a single guy. Now I'm married, and I got like three kids. And and it's like, it's been 20 years or something. It's been 30 years, and he says, that's a blink for you. Yeah. And for me, that's a whole life lived. Yeah. and I suppose this will help us in conceptualizing some of these things, right? Exactly. Yeah. Because I really do think something kind of like that is what Peter's saying. It's like, look, this is a long time for us. So God doesn't count patience in the same way that you and I do. But when we're thinking about what would our life be like when we're resurrected, 
maybe at some point then we will start to kind of have that sort of perspective going well a thousand years like I mean, it's kind of a long time but like yeah you know i've been around for a while mm. whereas right now hymn, like, oh, gosh, uh, there's a hymn that has a line like that right uh and we've been there for a thousand years yeah. uh, bright shining as the sun we'll have no less days to sing god's praise than when we first begun yeah yeah, yeah. Like it's it's same concept right mm-hmm. uh it's i i guess that's to answer this question it, it goes in there like we will we will start experiencing time the way God is experiencing time in that. I would guess. Yeah. That's cool. But I, mean, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> uh, but that, that's again, I, I think this is a good, the, the very good question. Um, let's see. I want to jump because Dan's asked a couple of questions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Alan uh, Dish asks, is it true that our access to eternity is mediated by the temporal event of Christ's incarnation into the world. That in a way time begins after Christ. When, okay. There's a lot of theologians who talk this way. They're not using time in the way that we have They're They're, they're talking about time in this weird sort of way where they mean like history and the purpose of history. Mm. And it's this weird, like German theological stuff that I, I, just, I don't have patience for. Um, and in the same way that God has no patience for it too. So, um, so I count patience the way that God does too. It's so I, I, th- I think that the time about eternity, they're usually assuming something like timelessness, even when they say like Karl Barth says he rejects divine timelessness, but he affirms a view that's identical to timelessness. Uh, and then they'll make these kind of claims that Christ is like this mediating, uh, and, and then time begins meaning like this new era uh, this, uh, of history begins. So I think the better statement would be, well, time's always existed because God, God is time. Um, but you can divide up the timeline into different uh, like eras of history that have different kinds of significance to them. And what happens on the cross, I mean, that clearly marks a, a new era Correct. Uh, of significance. The, the old age has passed away and the new age has come. I mean, it, so I think you could talk those ways and it makes more sense. Uh, it doesn't sound as profound uh, as the way the Germans put it, but I'm not always interested in sounding really profound. Yeah, I actually like the way you you paraphrase uh, some of these Bible stories. Like uh, <laughs> it's it brings it down to earth. It's great. Um, now, this is sort of related to this, uh, this next question, uh, but it, it's important because I think uh, it might possibly lead us into a place where we have a dangerous view of God, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Abstract Acoustic says, the words don't actually matter in relationship to God. And I suppose, uh, and, and, and goes on to say, that's the mystery of God. I suppose what is trying to, and if I'm misunderstanding, forgive me, uh, but I suppose what's being said or is trying to be said is that we can't really say stuff about God. Like the words don't, Mm. define him mm-hmm. fully or properly like they don't matter in relationship to god yeah um i see this claim a lot and i don't i don't i don't know if people always mean what they say uh, or i don't think they realize what they're saying sometimes so if i utter the statement you cannot talk about god well i just i just talked about god uh and if i say that all statements about god are meaningless well, then that statement too has to be meaningless, but I'm assuming you were trying to convey something meaningful. Mm-hmm. So there's this tradition called apophaticism, uh, where you can only talk about God in terms of what God is not. 
hardly anyone is consistent with that. And most people are not even trying to be. But when we try to be consistent with it, I don't, I don't think you can because you always end up making a positive statement about God and your negations, like God's not like this, God's not like this. Why should I think a thing like that? Yeah. God's not evil. Why? Was well, it because God's not, God's just a jerk? Because <laughs> like, I know a lot of jerks, they're not, they're not evil. Like I'm in Philadelphia, there's a bunch of jabronis always like honking their horns out the street. And I'm like, well, they're not evil, yeah. but they're not good. Uh, so if I say God's not evil, I've not really said what I really want to say, because what I really want to say is God's, God's perfectly good. Uh, like that seems like a better statement. So I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't have these kind of worries about defining God. My fear is this, uh, is this development of uh, a weird Gnostic ideology about Mm -hmm. who God is. It's, it it goes there. I think there's plenty of people in the church without realizing uh, that they're actually Gnostics. Um, again, I'm not saying they're not saved or something like that. Just their view of yeah. God is not. Awesome. You just their like view entails it, certain things. They're like, oh, no, we can't know that, and we can't know that, and we can't know that. It's like, but God's revealed him. Like, we believe the Bible yeah. is a revelation of God about himself. So there's a lot of stuff we can know about him, right? That's that's yeah. my fear. Is like, well, if when we say God is patient, you know, what do we mean? And it's like, we can't really, you know, they're all anthropomorphisms. Um, and I, I'm not very convinced of that. And I think it can lead to a dangerous area. Even though I think there's obviously some mystery, there are things about God that we don't know, sure. or we know partially or something. Right? But it's not terribly interesting because there's a lot of things about you I don't know, and I don't worship you. Yeah. I worship God because of the things I do know about God. Uh, so I think the religiously significant things about God are the things that he's revealed to us that we do know. As soon as the Apostle Paul says in Acts, we do not worship the unknown God like the pagans do. We worship a God who's revealed himself. And so, so yeah, I, th- I think a lot of these statements that we make sometimes to sound really pious, they sound really cool to say like God's so mysterious, we can't know him. I do think it end, ends up like contradicting the very idea of God revealing himself to us. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so uh, next question comes in. It, it says, how can there be no sequence? He decides to create, then he creates. If there is no sequence, all those events happen simultaneously. Right. This is a very serious problem for divine timelessness because the classical view says God could have refrained from creating. Like it really was possible God like could have not created anything or God could have created a completely different universe. Uh, and then when you look at the Trinitarian debates, they'll even say things like the Father or the Holy Spirit could have become incarnate instead of God the Son. Like these were all options because God's perfectly free. And you're like, okay, well, how, how do I make sense of God being undecided about what to do and then making a decision and then enacting that decision without introducing sequence and succession? I want to say you just cannot do that. Um, people were so deeply unsatisfied with the just the just people ignoring this question uh, all the way up until the late Middle Ages. When you get this guy named John Duns Scotus, he's really like annoyed that no one's answered this question, and so he's like, "Okay, I'll give you an answer." There's these things called logical moments. They're not temporal. They have the same structure as temporal moments, but they're all but but they're logical moments, and they all take place in the single timeless moment. So you really do have at the first logical moment, God's undecided about what to do. And at the next logical moment, God's weighing his options. And then at the third logical moment, God's like, that's the universe I want to create. Somehow all of this logical sequence is happening in the single timeless moment of God. That sounds kind of weird and crazy, but it has a huge influence on uh, everybody after that. So Molinism 
is based on this because Molinism talks about these three moments in life of God. Calvinist, they all do the same thing. And then when you look at the Protestant Reformation as, as it unfolds and becomes Protestant scholasticism, they have debates about the proper ordering of these logical moments in the life of God. So this this view, it's really late in the game. Like this is 13th century. I mean, like, uh, but that's because people are unsatisfied with the, with the responses. And then it, I mean, it really does capture the imagination of a lot of people still trying to affirm timelessness for, for generations. I don't think it works, but but that, but I I just want to really give it a, its go to say like look this is really this is how people have tried to develop it and there's a lot of details they can give. Okay, great. Um, <clears throat> so some some other questions from me. Sure. Uh, wh what's your favorite movie on time? Favorite movie on time? Oh goodness, I don't know. Um, for a while, I really liked Tenet. No, not Tenet. Um, what was the Inception? Sorry, Inception. Yes. Uh, I, was, I, was, I was like Christopher Nolan. What did he yeah. do? <laughs> Here's why. Um, so you've got like multiple timelines going on in Inception because like, you know, like you get deeper into like the, into the dreams and what happens there uh, feels like it's, you know, it's going on like for a while, but it's, 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 it's like what's happening at the next timeline is it's, it's actually like a lot longer. And so this is something that Christopher Nolan really plays with a lot in a lot of his movies, but here's the thing I really appreciate about it. He still has simultaneity he still has a present moment going on in all of these movies and i'm like yes that's right that's how this is supposed to work so he's got something that like in the inception where what was it called it was like the kickback um where like there's some sort of action you could do to try to get up into the next level of the of the of the dream mm. and whenever that was happening it was always simultaneous what was what was happening at each right. level yes so even though your experience of how much time is happening is radically different at each level it's still all lined up uh, in, in a proper sequence. There's still a present moment. And I think that on the v if you want to have a coherent view of the multiverse, I don't like a multiverse, but if you want to have a multiverse, because they're cool, they're fun, I think that's the way you got to go. I think that's the way you have to tell the story of going, there really is a present that captures all of what's going on in the, in, across the multiverse. But the way people experience things in each multiverse is going to feel different. But it's still there's going to be this present that that captures it all, and I think Inception does that in a pretty cool way. Mm. Very interesting. Nice. Yeah. So I um. I love time movies. Uh, anytime it doesn't matter how bad or good they are, I I watch them anyways. Yeah, um, I, I have a guilty pleasure about doing that too. Um, so um, it, it seems to be the case that we we're seeing quite a bit of this within the Marvel uh, universe. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems this yeah. Phase Four thing is going to have a lot, quite a bit of stuff to do with time and how it operates, and multiple timelines. Um, and this, I don't know if you're a Marvel fan or not, but I've seen a, a, a quite a few of them, but like not all of them though. Yeah. Okay. So, um, is, is there anything in those that you've seen that could help us maybe have like a mental image of, Hey, here's a good view. Here's how it will help you with God. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, some, some people have, uh, commented on, uh, the whole, uh, Dr. Strange seeing the multiple, mm -hmm. you know, outcomes and then going with, the, with this one, how that resonates theologically with Christianity. But, um, what's, well, okay. I, I, any time travel movie, you have to fudge somewhere in order to make the story go. Mm. Uh, so I think one thing you learn is when you're watching these, they all have to fudge something in order to avoid contradiction. Um, because if you change the past, then you've, you have to change literally everything that happens after that. You have to, you're basically replacing an entire timeline. 
Uh, and so each story will try to throw in something to go like, well, as long as we like just kind of keep the change like in this really small area, it's no big deal. And you're like, that's not how this works. But OK, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Uh, or they'll have something in the story to prevent you from changing the past and all, and all this kind of crazy stuff. Uh, and so I think the the fact that you're forced to fudge to tell a good story uh, is really useful in terms of helping us go. You can't time travel is just impossible. Let's just Correct. stop with this nonsense. Um, it's fun for a story, but it's not real. Now, the the Doctor Strange case, I find this interesting because I saw a lot of people, a lot of Molinists wanting to go, this is this is Molinism through and through. And I'm like, is it though? I feel like it's actually open theism, um, uh, which is fine because, you know, like it helps you understand a particular theological viewpoint. So what you've got going on with Doctor Strange is you've got what's called a temporal uh, modal logic, um, where logic isn't uh, your modal logic about what's possible and what's actual and what's necessary and contingent. It's not defined in terms of um, of like possible world semantics, which is what a lot of us like to do. It's defined in terms of what is true across the possible timelines. And so you look at this one timeline, and it's always like, well, how many timelines are we going to be able to like uh, you know beat Thanos? And what's it like? What one or something? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, you're like, okay, so <laughs> yeah, so they're like, whew, goodness, okay. So what you've got in that sort of story is you've got this temporal modality, which is kind of cool. If you're like a logic nerd, I'm really not. So it's only got limited appeal to me, but it looks like it, but it's an open theist story because it's not certain that that's the timeline that's going to happen. Right. Because they don't know. Um, yeah. And so that's exactly what the open theist says. The open theist says, God knows all the possible timelines. He knows exactly all the ways they could go. God can also intervene to make sure it goes the way he wants it to. Uh, but he knows all the possible timelines. The Molinist wants to make a stronger claim of not God just intervenes, but God goes, I select this one and it's Correct. definitely going to happen. Yeah. So that's not what you see with the, with the, with the Marvel story. So it looks more open theist. Yeah. So the, so the Molinist view has a higher view of sovereignty. And I mean, that's yes. essentially what well, Molinism is trying to arrive at. Yeah. We use, we use these higher, lower yeah, sovereignty. Yeah, I think it's a fuzzy term, but yeah, that's, that's the claim. That's the idea of like, God's got a lot more control uh, over the situation. Uh, and the open theists usually don't like that level of divine control. Correct. Whereas the Molinist is like, meh, it's fine. It's cool. God guarantees like, a, you know, evil's going to get defeated. That's pretty great, right? Like, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think pole polemically gives us a, a, a pretty good uh, kind of weapon in our hands. Like, hey, we're guaranteed yeah. this. Yeah. Um, so another question that came in was, mm -hmm. what do you mean when you say the present is the only thing that exists? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to ask a follow-up to this kind of. I don't know how to make it more basic. So when you start asking, well, okay, do the dinosaurs exist? And I want to go, well, well, they did, but they don't anymore because all that exists is what presently exists. Everything that's simultaneous with this conversation exists. That's it. Okay. So God's simultaneous with this. What's ever happening on the other side of the universe is simultaneous with this. And that's it. So, how long is the present? That's my follow-up. Mm -hmm. no, that's, that's a good question. I don't think individual moments have temporal length. When we're talking about temporal length, we are talking about, this is going to be really technical. I'll try to okay. make it less technical in a second. When we're talking about temporal length, we are talking about temporal distance relations between moments. So in order to establish amounts of time, you have to have multiple moments to talk about how long something lasted. Uh, this is the idea. Uh, so if you want to establish a clock, for instance, you need a beginning point of when you start the sort of like 
your, 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 your measurements and an endpoint of when you end your measurements. Mm. So you have to have a sequence of things happening. You also have to have like a constant tick, um, some kind of mechanism that has a constant tick to develop a clock. But, but the big idea for to have temporal length and amounts, you need multiple moments of time. That's, that's the big idea. Would you say that our measurement um, of time is well, relative to a certain extent? Uh, not in the way Einstein would say it, but in the way that Newton would say it. So, so Newton um, said that our, our time exists uh, regardless of the measurements we make of it. Like it's just ticking on and on and on and on, regardless of what measuring devices we come up with. Mm -hmm. Because we could come up with all sorts of different kind of coordinate systems and uh, like ways of like cutting up things. We didn't have to use seconds. We could use something else. We don't have to use hours. We could use something else. So these are all conventions. But I think that these conventional systems we use to measure time, they are actually capturing something, which are these temporal relationships between distance relationships between moments. Um, but they're, they're relative to our measurements are relative to the devices that we have. Uh -huh. And then, so that's, that's really the big claim, which doesn't sound too shocking, but like <laughs> our, yeah, our measurements of time depend on like whatever measuring devices we can come up with. And then gravity screws up our measuring devices. So that's weird. Um, but yeah, that's, so it's relative to our ability to come up with a, a reliable clock. Cool. Um, Let's let's end this and uh, mm -hmm. bring it back to a, I guess a practical place, uh, and I'll share my personal view of this. Mm -hmm. So, when I, I I can't say I changed my view. It's I really didn't have a view, but when I studied this and I was like, oh man, you know, I I'm leaning this way, and I think this mm -hmm. this this is true. It actually gave me a greater appreciation of my prayer life. Oh sure, yeah yeah. yeah. Uh, because when I talk to God, in, in my understanding, this is a moment that is unique to me and God, and it will never happen again. Uh, God will, not that I won't pray again, but that specific point, right? Sure. Um, uh, that, that it's even unique for God, uh, that God won't experience this again. Um, and so it kind of, uh, it, it brings it into that, like, seize the moment, right? This carpe diem kind mm -hmm. of uh, understanding of... I get to have this now. Now that's in relation between me and God. And then it's become my view as well with obviously with my children and my wife and my friends uh, where you value these things are just, it goes up. But especially when it comes to theological, when I'm thinking about God, when I'm mm -hmm. talking about God, when I'm talking to God, it really made me value it. In, in what ways has it impacted your, uh, your spiritual life and your relationship with God? So I did change my view. So originally, uh, I wanted to say God was timeless. And the spiritual implication there for me was, wow, God's so big. He's so amazing. I can't understand him. Uh, and when it was just sort of like... I think this is important because yeah. I think I've heard you say this in an interview. When you say originally, does this mean when uh, when you started your dissertation? No, this was going back to when I was 16. Uh, okay. And I was reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Uh, I guess C.S. Lewis says that God's timeless. And, and that was a moment where I thought, well, this is a, this is God's much bigger than I realized. He's much more transcendent and these kind of terms. Uh, and so that really brought me to worship God. Um, at some point I realized sometimes there's like movies you watch and it doesn't make any sense. And that's why you're like, oh, it's so cool because I can't quite figure it out. It doesn't make any sense. And then I realized that was kind of what I was doing with God. Uh, and, and I was like, is that really, is that the reason I worship God? Because I can't make sense of it. 
I don't know if that that doesn't that's not, that's that's a kind of that's kind of weird. Uh, so as I, what sustained me though in uh, in thinking that uh, God's eternal nature is important is partly the coherence of the Christian story because I want to know that this is true, but on a spiritual level, I want to know if God is the sort of being that can give me everlasting life, mm. and if God's everlasting and He's like I'm going to give you an everlasting life, I'm going to give you some of that. I'm like, well, what does that mean? Because God can't give me timeless existence. Because whatever he gives me would become later and become after. And that's a temporal relationship. But a temporal God, he's like, I've, I can give you a life without end because I have a life without end. I can give you that. I'm like, oh, okay. This is the kind of being who can make good on his promises. That, that's, that's, that's reassuring. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a cool one. I like that. I just like invite you. It's sort of like God just invites us into his own experience of um, his life. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. I like that. Um, yeah. Well, I, I'll end on this note because some, somebody said, um, I'd like to thank your interviewee. This was the most interesting subject I've heard so far. And oh, um, great. I am glad that that is the sentiment that you have. And I, I hope everybody that's watching this and folks who are going to watch the replay, that this will just be a beginning point for you to go into um, thinking and researching uh, this idea. Uh, there's plenty of books we can recommend. And I think I can recommend on this subject, but um, there's a really good book called God and Time Four Views, uh, edited by uh, Greg Ganzel. That is a really good introductory text because mm -hmm. then you get to see the individuals who are debating one another um, and you know showing what their views are, and and then you can kind of see, well, I'm, this one makes a lot more sense to me than this one, and then I'm going to go and focus in that area and. Yeah. and study it but just as an introductory text uh what we will do is we will put uh, okay actually before we end you have a podcast if people want to listen to you talking mm. about stuff uh it's called the reluctant theologian yep um and what are, what are the sorts of things that you discuss on there so we talk about some philosophy of time every now and then a, a lot of it is uh some interviews with people who are doing high level work in uh, philosophical theology. Mm -hmm. So you get a sneak peek at some upcoming academics conversations, uh, some uh, interesting stuff on historical debates, get some scientists on there every now and then. So we've we had quite a few biologists uh, on the show in the past. Sometimes we do some philosophy of physics. We've got some psychology episodes coming up. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's all over the place in terms of uh, philosophical theology and sometimes some heavy metal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not a not a heavy metal fan, but uh, ah, well, it's too bad. Hey, it's too bad. Hey, that's, that's it's it's, it's the the music of heaven. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I I can't. The thing is, it's it's interesting. I've realized that I can't tolerate lots of noise, mm. um, and mm -hmm. that's a part of me getting older, and that's a part of me having three kids at home who there's always <laughs> noise around me. There's always yeah. some kind of yelling in the background, so that's that might be why. Um, okay, and then uh, you have articles that you've written like a lot. Mm. Yeah. It's always funny I, to me that uh, I go, where do you find the time? And, you know, yeah. <laughs> so you've written tons of articles and then we'll, we'll link those, uh, the ones that we can, can. Uh, and then again, the books. And then you have a couple of upcoming books. Yes. So one book. One contracted, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we've got actually th three books I'm working on at the moment, soon to be four. Um, so one is on uh, divine, uh, divine temporality. So just what does it mean to say God's temporal? And so some of the stuff that I talked about today is going to be detailed in that book. 
The other one I'm excited about that's under contract is called A Little Book About a Big God. So this is one that's going to be written uh, for Cascade. So it'll actually be affordable. So it'll only be $20 instead of the normal $100. So you can actually buy it. Uh, And it's just going to be trying to lay out, here's what I think about the nature of God. Here's why I think God would create just anything at all. And then why would God create this universe? And then if God knows the future, doesn't that... What are God's emotions like? Should, mm. should that affect God's emotions? So I'm going to be looking at questions like that uh, in, in that book. Uh, and then this other book uh, that I'm working on is called Divine Simplicity and Other Theological Mistakes, where I'm trying to just look at other views and go, yeah, that's, this was a bad idea for Christianity. Let's let's not do that anymore. Mm. Uh, and then you you wrote something for the Cambridge um, God in Emotion. Mm. My... God in Emotion. So that came out uh, two years ago, and then there's a Spanish version of it. Uh, called God, Emotion, and Scripture. And so this is this was a more personal one where I was just trying to figure out what are your options in terms of understanding the emotional life of God? So a more classical theistic view and then uh, another view where God actually has a wide range of emotions. Uh, be, because I, I, I think in a series of papers, um, so I've got a brand new paper that just came out actually uh, that's called uh, Closeness with God, where I look at if you want to say a very traditional view about God's emotional life, you can't have a close personal relationship with God at all. Uh, it, and, and in fact, God looks like he's a psychopath, um, according to current psychological literature. So maybe we should go with a biblical view of God instead. I don't know. Uh, it depends what you, how you feel about these things. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it up to you guys to you know, read it out and figure it out for yourselves. Um, and then finally, you have a website that it seems like you're pretty active on there mm-hmm. and you, you got a lot of stuff. Why don't you tell us what that website is and... So it's rtmullins.com, so just my name. Uh, and you can see a lot of the articles I put up there, uh, links to the different books that I've written uh, and, and books I've contributed to. And then this book series that I'm doing with, uh, with Cascade with John Peckham, where John Peckham and I are trying to get n- people to write new books on just the nature of God and explore some un- unexplored areas. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Ryan, thank you, man, uh, for, uh, for yeah. agreeing to do this. and. I'm sure we'll get uh, some other opportunities uh, to have you on and discuss so. some, some further work you're doing. And uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for being here with us for, well, hey, it flew by. Time flew by mm-hmm. uh, for an hour and uh, almost 30 minutes. Hopefully you've enjoyed this. And if you have, uh, go ahead and share it out with other people and let them know uh, about Ryan and the work that he does. And uh, this very important subject that I think is, um, again, very personal. Uh, because it has to do with our relationship with God. So I want to thank you guys. I will see you guys tomorrow for my live Q&A. We'll try to have that for about two hours. So take care. God bless you guys, and I will see you then. 